Beginning in verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Father, we pray, as we always do, we ask, Lord, that you would please teach us, Lord. As we look at your word, we pray, Father, that you would give us life application. We pray, Lord, that we might be able to see perhaps some aspects of ourselves in the text as we look at the Samaritan woman or the disciples. We pray, Lord, that we would be drawn to you, Jesus, and that we'd see more of your character and your love and your compassion. So, Lord, teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, um, the Word of God is alive. And every time we read the Word of God, there are things that we could glean from it if we're truly open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I say that, you say, well, Dan, you always say that. Well, I'm saying it afresh this morning because there was something that just jumped out at me that I have not noticed um, the many times I've taught this text, um, even teaching at the first service. I didn't pick up on this, and I just saw it as I was reading through it. I thought it was interesting that it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus, it seems to make a distinction between here, at least, the Lord and Jesus in the text. And I can't help but think of the Lord, the Father. We know that Jesus was following the agenda of the Father. Whatever the Father's will for him was, that's what he was doing. And I point that out because I think it's worth noting that that Jesus said that I need to go through Samaria. Now, some commentators, they say, well, the reason he needed to go through Samaria is because he was on a hurry to get back up to the Galilee. And you could cut off, you know, two days of your journey if you cut through Samaria. And so that's, that's why they needed to do that. But I suggest to you that he needed to go through Samaria because it was the Father's plan that he go through Samaria, and because there was a divine, divine appointment for him in Samaria. I think it's beautiful when you consider this divine appointment was with the most unlikely person, a woman of Samaria. I'll highlight that a little bit more as we go on. But to me, it just uh, makes me think of how much the Lord cares for us. I think sometimes, you know, as individuals, we think, because we don't want to become prideful or self-centered. And that's a good thing, by the way. Uh, but I think sometimes we say, yes, the Lord loves the world. And I'm in the world, so the Lord loves me. But, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that the Lord loves you individually. The Lord knows you by name. The Lord knows the number of hairs you have on your head. Uh, the Lord holds you in his hand if you've truly placed your faith in him. And I think it's so important to recognize that because when we look at this text today, we see that the Samaritan woman had this appointment with Jesus. She knew nothing about it, but she had an appointment with Jesus. She was a Samaritan. The Samaritans, you may or may not know, were a long uh, hated <laughs> group of people. They were the byproduct of the Assyrian captivity. So Assyria came and uh, took the 10 tribes, not all of them, but many within the 10 tribes of the northern part of Israel into captivity about 720-something B.C. And so they take many of these people into captivity. The king of Assyria, he sends people down, people groups down into Israel, they begin to occupy the land there in the northern part of Israel. Those people being Gentiles, of course, they're coming with all of their baggage. 
they come and they intermarry with those who are left in the northern part of Israel. And so you have the Samaritans. The Samaritans were idol worshipers, and yet they embraced different aspects of uh, Yahweh, worshiping the Lord. And so it was kind of a mixed bag, mixed group, and there was animosity toward uh, the Jews, toward the Samaritans, and it was an equal thing toward the Samaritans and, and the Jews. So, um, or from the Samaritans to the Jews. They were unable to uh, account for or to trace back their genealogy. And remember in Israel, that was a really important thing. We see that, don't we, as you study the scriptures, um, that for Israel, you had to know what family you were born in, what clan you belonged to, what tribe you belonged to. All of this is important. And um, of course, they were unable to do that. And so they established their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim, and they had their own religion, kind of something that they made up. And uh, just to kind of highlight the animosity between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, remember when Jesus, his enemies, they wanted to insult him. And so uh, I guess in their mind, the worst thing they could say about Jesus, and it's recorded in John chapter 8, they said, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. So uh, it kind of gives you, you know, some understanding on the whole thing. So Sychar. It's not pronounced Sychar. None of the things that we pronounce, especially none of the things I pronounce in the Bible are, are, are what they actually are. You know, we have our, one of our little grandsons, David. His name is David. That's how you would say his name. We have another grandson, Amos. His name is Amos. If you're in Israel, the sound of it, I have, we have a son, Nehemiah. His name is Nehemiah. So, of course, we pronounce, we, you know, we amplified the vowels and everything, and they had no vowels in the Hebrew language, and so we kind of uh, botched the language. But needless to say, Sychar, it was between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now, does that strike a chord of memory for you? Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses was told by the Lord to pronounce blessings and to pronounce curses, to, to pronounce blessing on obedience and curses on disobedience. The blessings were pronounced as one stood on the Mount of Gerizim, the curse as one stood on the Mount of Ebal. So there's a lot of history in this particular area. And uh, as we read, you know, Jesus, he's, he's, he's departing from Judea now. He's making his way back up to Galilee. He stops there in Samaria, and um, he's there at Jacob's well, and it's the sixth hour. So he's there at 12 noon. Now, even there, you know, if you say, well, no, 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 I read. Well, it depends on the reckoning of time. Some would say, Jesus was there at 6 a.m., 6 in the morning, or um, 6 in the evening. I mean, I've heard a number of different things. It, it depends upon the reckoning of time. And I think it's safe to say that it was in the middle of the day when you consider the text and what was taking place here. And again, I'll try to amplify that as we, as we go on. So Jesus, it's around 12 noon. He's weary. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He sits down. He waits, and the disciples go in to the city, so they would go into the city of Sychar to buy food. So you can kind of picture the whole scene here. By the way, guys, Jesus, in his incarnation, was fully man. Um, we have to emphasize that because, you know, at the time of Christ and, and shortly after his ascension to heaven, there were those who said that Jesus was not man, uh, that Jesus could not be man because flesh is matter and matter is evil, and there's no way that God could take on the form of a man. But the Bible teaches clearly that in his incarnation he was fully man. But the Bible also teaches at the same time that he was God. And so just as any man, any woman, any person, human being, 
would experience hunger and thirst and pain, of course, when you're, you're hurt. Jesus experienced all of those things. And so here we see him. He's, he's sitting. He's waiting. And, uh, and they make their way in to the city. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. You know, guys, there are times in the scripture that we can just read it. And, and sometimes, you know, God's people, sadly, we're in such a hurry to just read a text, almost as if there's some magic, you know, gold star at the end of just reading the text, rather than saying, I want to glean from the text. I want to understand what the text is teaching. And sometimes we need to just sit and, and kind of meditate upon the things we're reading about. When I look at this, I think of, I think of the fact that they're at the well. The well was the place where the people of the city went to draw their water. I don't think they had other options. I think this was probably it. This was the water source. And I don't think that, you know, from the well... There would be a trail going this way, a trail going that way, a trail going that, you know, that, well, what, what, what route should I take back to the city? There was probably one trail, one road that led back to the city. You say, what's your point, Dan? My point is this. If his disciples went in to buy food, she's on her way out to draw water, they had to have passed each other. And I want you to consider that because when we finish up John chapter 4, which will, it will take us three weeks to do that, um, when we finish it up, we're going to see the response of the Samaritans, the people of, Samar of, of the city, Sychar, and all. And, and we'll note and I'll point out the fact that, that the disciples were in that very city buying food. And apparently they had little to no impact upon the people of Samaria. But Jesus did. And I think that um, it's worth noting that, you know, as they passed each other, I doubted, I doubt highly because of the animosity that the Jews felt toward the Samaritans and the Samaritans toward the Jews, that they said hello to each other, that they greeted one another. They probably saw, you know, the woman coming down the trail. They knew that she was a Samaritan. Surely the way people dressed even, you know, you could tell if a person was a Hebrew or a Samaritan based upon their colors and different things. And as she was coming out, they probably went wide. She probably went wide. They probably never even glanced at each other. She's on her way out to the well. They don't think anything of it. And they make their way in to get the food. I also think it's worth noting that when you consider the text, because, you know, guys, we, um, for time's sake, we're taking portions of the scripture. So we're breaking it up. And this is why I encourage you to be faithfully reading the text. So as you're reading the text, you're probably not going to say, well, I, I think Dan will probably do 26 verses today, so I'll just read 26 verses. You're probably going to read the whole chapter. And as you read the whole chapter, following the chapter that came before it and the chapter that is after it, you begin to see this flow. Because remember, it's the Holy Spirit leading John, the beloved, to write these things, to record these things, and he's recording things that the other gospel writers did not record. The other gospel writers don't tell us about Nicodemus and that encounter that he had. The other gospel writers doesn't tell us, they don't tell us about the Samaritan woman and this encounter that Jesus had. You consider Nicodemus, the woman, the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was seeking when he came to Jesus. The Samaritan woman was indifferent. I mean, you know. She probably was drawing her water. She saw Jesus sitting there. She knows he's a Jew. I don't think because he had a you know, shirt on that says, I'm a Jew. She knew he's a Jew because she refers to him as a Jew. Nicodemus was an esteemed ruler. Remember, Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel. The Samaritan woman was a disrespected outcast, even among her own people. Nicodemus was serious where the Samaritan woman was flippant. And you pick that up as you read the things that she had to say to Jesus at first. Nicodemus was a respected Jew, and the Samaritan woman was a despised Samaritan. Nicodemus was moral, as far as we know. I mean, there's no indication to think that he wasn't. But the Samaritan woman was immoral, and we see that even in the text. Nicodemus was orthodox, and she was heretical in her beliefs. 
Nicodemus obviously was educated in religious matters, and she was ignorant in religious matters. And again, I'm not picking on her. These are just the things that we see in the text. Though they were so different from one another, they both needed to be born again. They both needed what only Jesus could provide. So verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing, dealings excuse me, with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you think that would pique her interest? I mean, if you were talking to somebody and they were saying things like that, wouldn't you be interested in saying, what are you talking about? <clears throat> it sounds good, whatever it is you're talking about, but, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Guys, typically, women, even to the present day, you know, you go to Israel today, there are Bedouins who live in the country. You travel around Israel and you see Bedouins. They live in tents and they have usually small flocks of, of you know, goat and sheep, kind of a mixture of the two. And, and they just live out there in the desert on the land and all. It's not uncommon. Other countries, of course, have, have Bedouins that just kind of... Um, typically, the women would draw water early in the morning because they had busy days. You know, if they had children, they had to take care of their kids. And, and of course, all the chores, I mean, it would have been, there would have been a lot to do. You know, you're preparing meals. It wouldn't be like, I'm going to throw something in the microwave here, but it'd probably take you some time to do things that happen so quickly for us today. But typically, the women would go in for water. They'd do it early in the morning. They'd go in groups, they would do that for safety's sake and also for fellowship. So that was kind of their time, you know, uh, we're drawing water, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk, we're gonna fellowship, we're gonna, we're gonna have, gonna, you know, share a little bit here. But I think it's worth noting that she comes alone. I mean, there's no mention of anyone else, there's no mention of any other women being there, and once you continue to read the text, the disciples were confused. They were troubled that he was alone with the woman and that he was speaking to her. So we kind of get a picture of what was happening here. So for her, there was no group. There was no friends. There was no fellowship. And so we have to ask ourselves, again, supposing that you've read the whole chapter, that you know about her background, we have to wonder, did the other women of Samaria, of uh, Sychar, did they shun her because of her reputation? Were they afraid to get too close to her for fear that their husband might become her next husband? You say, oh, people don't think that. Oh, sure they do. Listen, whenever you take humanity out of the scriptures, when you try to make it something that is not, you're really doing disjustice to the word of God. How is it, she says, verse 9, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me? She was surprised. She was surprised that Jesus would ask her for a drink because, verse 9 goes on to say, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That could also be translated in this way. Ask no favors from a Samaritan or... It could be rendered this way, use no vessels in common with a Samaritan. And Jesus did both. He asked a favor, and he wanted to use the common vessel. What are you going to drink out of? The same vessel you're drinking out of. Give me a drink. I'm thirsty. It's interesting, guys, as you look at the account and you see how this Samaritan woman, and isn't it amazing to you that many times we come across these, these characters in the Bible, we, we, we get to know them, if you will, through the scriptures, and yet we know so little about them. We don't know her name. 
Isn't that interesting how there are a number of individuals, we know their story, but we don't, we don't really know their name. We don't really know much about them. Just enough, you know, for the text and, and what it's teaching and what it's showing us. But I think it's worth noting that, that her knowledge of Jesus, as her knowledge of Jesus increased, her opinion of Jesus changed. And I think that that's true today. You know, she says uh, first, she says she sees Jesus as simply a Jew. We see that in verse 9. And then in verse 12, she asks Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? And then, you know, they continue kind of this back and forth. They're talking with one another. And then you get to verse 19, and, and she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. See, more knowledge. And then finally, we see her going in and asking her fellow Samaritans, the men, that is, no mention of the women, but the men, and she asks the question, could this be the Christ? So Jesus, as he's speaking to her, he's drawing her in. I mean, her interest is peaked. She, you know, she's kind of this back and forth. She's talking to him. He adds a little bit more. Her interest is peaked. She's listening to what Jesus has to say. And I gave the illustration at the first service that Jesus had, had set the baited hook before her and she was about to bite it. And I said, you know, if we think of that as a negative illustration, we need to remember that Jesus told his disciples when he called them, at least four of them, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And that's what Jesus was doing, really. And that's what we're called to do as fishers of men. You know, we, we share Jesus. Too often, we never get around to talking about Jesus. We might share our own story or, or something else, you know, the church that we attend or this, that, or the other, you know. Did you see this movie and that movie? And, and we never get around to really talking about Jesus. But I'll tell you, the more we talk about Jesus, our, our interest will be piqued. I was thinking... You know, when I was a teenager, young teenager, of course, I grew up in a religious home, a Roman Catholic, went to parochial school, so went to church six days a week and really didn't get much out of it. You know, um, it was just something we did. I, you know, this, we're a Catholic family. This is what Catholics do. If your parents could afford to put you in parochial school, there you were, you know, with your uniform on and your, your adult shoes. I always point out the shoes because I think it was torture to put little boys in wingtips. You know, my dad wore wingtips. <laughs> I shouldn't have wore wingtips in school. But, you know, once I became a teenager and, of course, became disillusioned with religion and uh, started looking into other Eastern mysticism and meditations and that type of thing. And I remember seeing... You know, the, there was the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, and uh, it was a rock opera before it was a movie, and then eventually they made it into a movie. And I remember my sister and I watched the movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, and they were all hippies, so they kind of looked like us, you know, and, and that was drawing, that kind of drew our attention, you know, and we watched that thing, and we'd watch it over, and it was a musical, so that keeps your attention, you know. Um, you kind of learn the songs and everything. And I remember even getting the, um, the eight track. I know you'll have to look that one up later <laughs> before cassettes, but the eight track, and we'd listen to Jesus Christ Superstar. But I'll tell you, even though that, that movie was not doctrinally sound at all, I mean, it really wasn't, it kind of got our interest in Jesus. And then, you know, as time goes on, you know, of course, we saw the, the, the birth and, and, you know, just really the power and influence of the Jesus movement growing up in Southern California. Jesus people everywhere. You'd go to the grocery store. Jesus people would be standing out in front of the grocery store. You'd go surfing. Jesus people would be out in the water, you know. And when there, when there wasn't a set of waves, Jesus people would, it's like they had radar on you, you know. And um, it didn't help because my sister, you know, she was a surfer as well, my younger sister. And uh, she was going to church and all, and she would point me out, you know. She would, with all of her Jesus freak surfers, she would say, that's my brother. That's who I was talking about. And they'd paddle over, you know. 
and they would tell me about Jesus. And that piques your interest a little bit more. Now you're hearing a little bit more about Jesus, you know. This is how uh, I think it might have been for her, except it was happening at a very rapid pace because she's having one conversation with Jesus. Her interest is being piqued. He's stimulating her interest. And I'll tell you, wouldn't you be stimulated if you were offered the gift of God? Again, I think of the context, I think of the woman, I think of her being an outcast, I think of her background, I think of all of these things. I think of how miserable her life must have been and how lonely she must have been. You know, it's hard when you don't have friends. And I, and I think of, uh, I was just kind of wondering, I wonder when was the last time that she was engaged in a conversation with somebody? And, and when was the last time that she was offered a gift? I doubt that her fellow uh, men or women of her own city would offer her a piece of bread. And, and I think that it's safe to conclude that she had never up to this point in her life ever been offered a gift from God. And yet Jesus is offering her a gift from God. How beautiful. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and, li and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I shall give to him, listen, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. I have no husband. The woman, like Nicodemus, she hears Jesus speaking. Jesus is speaking about spiritual things. And she, um, she thinks of earthly things. And, and her request, give me this water so that I don't have to come down here anymore. I, I suggest to you, and I, I might be reading into the text, but I, I suggest to you that it was probably a painful experience for her every time she would have to wait while all the other ladies are going out to draw water for their families, coming back into town. Maybe those watering their life, livestock, they would be next in order. Now they're watering their livestock. And now she makes her way out to the well in the heat of the day when typically you'd want to be under some shade, you know, some protection, and you're making your way. And there's no umbrellas out there, you know, by the well or anything. And, and I wonder if she initially was thinking, Jesus, whoever you are, oh, give me this water. Make my life easy. Make my life easier. You know, guys, I think sometimes people, and, and, and I don't blame people, really the blame is on the church. When the gospel is presented in such a way that people see Jesus as kind of like a, you know, a, a, a band-aid or a crutch or, or just kind of something to enhance their almost perfect life, you know. It's not perfect, there's some issues, but I, my pastor always used to say, you know, uh, people criticize us as Christians and say, oh, Jesus is a crutch. And he says, that's not true. That's a lie. He says, Jesus is not a crutch. He's a gurney. We're laid out on him. We have no confidence in the flesh. We're not limping our way through life. We are fully dependent upon him, you know. And I, I agree with that. I think it's interesting, of course, she's like Nicodemus, you know. Don't you think it's interesting, by the way, that Nicodemus, he's an old man, 
And Jesus talks to him about being born again. The woman, she's at the well drawing water. And Jesus speaks to her about living water. Don't you think that's wonderful? I think it's wonderful that the Lord knows how to meet people right where they are. And he wants to meet people right where, where they are. And he is the answer. Jesus said in verse 14 that the water he gives, you'll never thirst. Now, obviously, he's not speaking of water that we would drink because, you know, water we drink doesn't quench our thirst forever. He was speaking of something else. So let me read just a few verses for you, and then, then we'll kind of move on. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then here's John's gospel, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus spoke these words. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. There's a theme going on here. And then in chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John gives us, the commentary on this, John said, but this he spoke concerning the, the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's the question. Is the living water the Holy Spirit, or is the living water salvation? And the answer is yes. That's what the answer is. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration, listen, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Guys, listen, this is, the gospel is so beautiful because no one is exempt from it. You know, if you're a religious leader, you still need to be born again. If you're a woman with a, you know, kind of a sordid reputation or a man with, you know, some real regrets and, and, and just bad behavior behind you, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. Paul said, remember what he said when he, he, he quoted that and he said, and then he says, and, and I am the chief of sinners. And we look at Paul and we say, boy, even when Paul was Saul, the Pharisee, you know, was he really the chief of sinners, you know? And, and yet Paul, he knew, he understood his sin in a deeper way than ever before once he came to faith in Christ. The living water is the Holy Spirit. The living water, the Holy Spirit, is life-giving. The living water, the Holy Spirit, satisfies and saves. The living water is given not to merely refresh, but to regenerate. The living water quenches the spiritual thirst, and the living water is free for the asking. We must never forget that. It's free for the asking. I was uh, mentioning to the, the first service, I, I was listening to some old uh, Jesus music on the way in today, Randy Stonehill. And uh, Randy, I like his music. I think he was, he still is, he's still around, you know. Phenomenal songwriter. And, uh, and uh, we saw, a number of us went over to Brian's church in Mount Vernon and saw Randy a few years ago. Randy had come there. And so Randy and uh, Pastor Brian and myself, we went back uh, before he had his little concert, you know, and we were praying with Randy. And I asked Randy, I said, Randy, could you do that, uh, say a prayer for the starlings? You know, I really like that song. And he goes, oh, you like that? And I, I thought, you know, oh, he's going to do that. Well, he never did it. But, but anyway, it's a beautiful song. And I was listening to it on the way in. It just happened to pop up there. And, and uh, it's a song, and it, Randy is singing as kind of a memory when he was a little boy, and, and they would travel to his grandmother's house and they would drive through the farmland there and uh, you know in the song he talks about 
you know, counting telephone poles and this, that, and the other. And he's looking out the window and he sees these starlings and the starlings, you know, something spooks the starlings and they just all flutter. He calls it the ballet in the sky. And his mother says, oh, curse those starlings. They are a thorn in the sight of farmers. And then the chorus of the song, say a prayer for the starlings, da, 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 da. You say, okay. Then the next lyrics of the song, he talks about going to a 7-Eleven and he sees a woman and she's sitting there on the curb. Her skin is like leather. Her eyes are blue and wild. When he walks up, she says, do you have any change? And he sits down next to her and says, what's your name? And she says, pick one. I'm hungry. And, uh, and then it goes back into the chorus, say a prayer for the starlings. The point is, obviously, is the things that seem to be accursed by man are not so with God. And I think that we need to remember that because... You know, I think of the Samaritan woman. I think of, you know, the people that we come across uh, daily, you know, people that are lonely, people that... I was talking to somebody recently. I don't remember who it was. And he was saying... He was talking uh, to a a homeless person. and, And as he was talking to me, he said, my heart was broken because I'm looking at this man. He's a young guy. And I was thinking of my baby... And I was thinking, his parents held him once in their arms. And his parents, and he's just kind of, you know, and and I'm I'm listening to him. I'm saying, praise the Lord. See, that's the spirit of God moving in our hearts, reminding us that these are humans and that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. But sometimes coming to faith in Christ, you know, initially might be the hard part. Go call your husband. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoken truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Even... Read the words, I just, you know. Yeah, that's me. You must be a prophet. How would you know these things? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus answered her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true, when, when the, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He says it once again. You know, when the Bible repeats itself, the Lord is trying to get our attention, you know. And the woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is so beautiful. Guys, (laughs) go call your husband it's been said the only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed of the word is to plow it up with conviction there could be no conversion without conviction there can be no conversion without acknowledgement of our sin Jesus, as he spoke to this woman, he had awakened her mind and and stirred her emotions, but he had to touch her conscience. And and, and what was true for her is true for us. Our sin is the elephant in the room that must be acknowledged. And let's be honest, it's the hard part for us. It's the part that we, we want to ignore 
before coming to faith in Christ, and many times even after coming to faith in Christ. In fact, I think it's, it's interesting as you read this, to me personally, in verse 20 when she says, our fathers worship on this mountain, to me I read this and I, I, I just picture her saying, change the subject, change the subject, don't talk about, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about me. Let's debate religion. Because I don't want to talk about me. Jesus said, listen, it's not the place. The time is coming. It's not the place. It's the who. <laughs> it's, it's not Mount Gerizim or Mount you know, Zion, Moriah, uh, Temple Mount. And then Jesus sets her straight. And I want us to see this because I, I think it's worth noting. Jesus says uh, that uh, you guys don't know what you, <laughs> what you worship. Nor in Jerusalem, where is it here? Um, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. How narrow, how rude. We protest modern-day Christianity. Why do you got to be so rude? Why do you got to call out our false thinking? If I want to believe that all roads lead to heaven, lead to God, why can't I believe that? Because truth is truth. Guys, we live in such a strange time to where many Christians, we are stunted in our spiritual growth. We are not maturing as other generations of Christians before us have matured. And the reason we're not maturing as other generations before us is because we're not giving ourselves to the teaching of the word of God. We're not standing upon the word of God. We're not believing the word of God. We're measuring things. We're, we're measuring heavenly things, spiritual things, with earthly reasoning. We are. And, you know, um, today, Many Christians and many Christian churches are concerned with the, the seeker. We need to be seeker sensitive, they say. We need to make sure that our, our worship is not heavy. We don't, we don't want to hear about, we don't want to sing about cross. We don't want to sing about blood. We don't want to sing about we don't want to sing about these types of things. We want to sing lyrics like, because you knew heaven would just not be the same without us. That's what we want to sing. Modern day Christianity, sadly, it's become so self-centered rather than God-centered. Keep it light. Don't talk about sin. Be sensitive to the seeker. Many, even pastors, are concerned more about what people think than what God thinks. And do you know that when we stand before the Lord and give an account, not the great white throne judgment if you're a believer, but the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. We're not standing there with you know, all of our friends and say, well, we all agree on this, unanimous rule, you know, or anything like that. We're going to stand before the Lord, and the Lord's going to say, what have you done with my son? Too many people are caught up in their own emotions. I don't feel this, I don't feel that, or I feel this way, or I feel that way. And there's this immaturity that is embarrassing. It's an, it's an immaturity that we should be embarrassed by. You know, I, I look and I think, um, you know, we have five children. They're all adults. My children grew up hearing their dad say on many occasions, 
be the man. You say, but you have three daughters. I know. I said it to them too. <laughs> what I meant to say is, you, you, you be mature. You, you make your decisions. You, you, you have convictions. You stand upon those convictions. You have responsibilities. You step up to your res responsibilities. You know, do what you need to do. And it just seems like there are so many that never develop. You know, you have a 20-year-old a, a man, 25. You know, I think I was, I was married when I was 19. Tracy and I were married very young, and, and I had a job the whole time, you know, because that's what guys do, right? You take care of your wife. And... And for me, you know, you, you didn't quit a job because you didn't like it. You kept the job because you had no other option. If another option came up, then you'd quit that job and go to the better, better job, better paying job or whatever it is. But you just, you just do the right thing. And now we have people, you, you know, guys, I mean, we see it all around us, don't we? This restaurant is closed because there's not enough people to work in the restaurant. And you say, you've got to be kidding. You can't get a waiter or a busboy or a cook or whatever, like, you know, and it's, it's just, oh, wow. And it's everywhere. We take our family vacations on the Oregon coast, and, um, and I don't know how many times we went to restaurants, and they were closed today because there wasn't enough workers. We'll be open two days from now for one day for a few hours. And I just think, how sad, you know, these business owners just trying to keep something rolling, and you don't have it, you can't do it all by yourself. Say, what's your point, Dan? My point is, is that too many people are concerned with the wrong seeker. Too many churches are wrong, concerned with the wrong seeker. Jesus said in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Listen, for the Father seeks, the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's the seeker we should be concerned with. Father, we serve you. Mario, come on up, please. I was telling the, the last service, I said, you know, uh, it's, it's hard. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I was telling Mario right between before we started today, and I said, you know, I've I, uh, been doing this for a long, long time, teaching God's word, and I said, I, I, I love it. I, I love my time with the Lord. I love my time preparing for studies. On one hand, it's never been better. The actual teaching of the word, it's never been harder. There is, there is opposition, there is a, you know, it's just a difficult thing. It's hard, you know, when you hear criticism, you know, well, you shouldn't have said it that way, or, you know, this, that, or the other. And, and it's almost like, I, I think, man, I, I don't know that I could be a pastor if the Lord tarries 10 years from now because I don't know that a church that the <laughs> church would have me as their pastor if we keep going the direction that we're going that everything needs to be light and fluffy and everything else because that's not what the church needs the church needs my job as a pastor my task as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all reach, you know, the, the unity of the faith. That's what my job is. That's my job description. And your job and my job as Christians is the Great Commission. And somehow we've, we've made the church into something different. Like the church is kind of like a theater. So come and listen to the pastor as he tells jokes. And that was a good one, wasn't it? And oh, we love that guy. He's always got a smile on his face. He's like a big teddy bear. And I'll tell you, and the church is not doing what it's called to do. Because there's never the conviction of sin. There's never the growth. I would rather pastor a few people that hopefully, prayerfully are taking seriously their life and saying, Lord, I don't want to be self-deceived. Lord, I want to examine myself to see if I'm truly in the faith. 
than to, than to pastor a, a multitude of people where maybe, maybe the majority of them are perishing because they know not God nor the power of the word of God. I, I picture this lady in, in, in passing, this Samaritan woman, you know. Jesus says, go get your husband. I have no husband. That's right. You've had five. The man you're living with now, you're, you're living with him. He's not your husband. She wants to avoid the whole topic. Let's debate religion. Finally, I picture her getting so flustered where she blurts out, I know this, that Messiah is coming, and when Messiah gets here, he'll set everybody straight. And Jesus says, yes, I'm him. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus reveals who he is to this woman? He didn't reveal that to Nicodemus. He didn't say to Nicodemus, hey, you're a spiritual leader. Psst, I just want to let you know I'm the Messiah. He tells someone who's despised and rejected. I think that's so beautiful about the Lord. Our Lord is not a respecter of persons, and neither should we be. Would you stand with me? Lord, we pray that we would be a people who have truly placed our faith in you. Lord, pray that we would embrace conviction and not think it's some bad thing but that is a good thing and that we wouldn't, we wouldn't kind of sit in our conviction with shame and, and, and hopelessness, but that we would take that conviction and with our mouth we would say, oh Lord, would you save me? Oh Lord, these things are true and so much more. And oh Lord, I know that you're not bringing these things to light because you want to shame me and, and, and just kind of rub my face in it. It's because you love me and you've died for me and it's your blood that redeems me. Lord, would you help us to be a people who understands the value of our salvation, that we'd understand how weighty it is, how costly it is, would you help us to grow in you? If there's anyone listening, Lord, that has not placed their faith in you, would you please persuade them by your Holy Spirit that they would call out to you and say, Lord, save me. That they would believe in their heart, they'd confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, we know what will follow. You will give them your Holy Spirit. And that longing, that thirst for things that have, has never been satisfied will be satisfied in you. Thank you, Lord.